So you have hundreds of young men carrying guns who believe like this is what we're supposed to do. It's like you can shoot somebody today and no one expected anyone to go to court and testify. The societal rules didn't matter to us. We live by our own rules and our own guidelines. Hey, 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 so glad you're here. This is Tracking Yes, and you are exactly where you're meant to be. I'm your host, Liz Wilson, coach, creator, and round-the-clock philosopher. And this, my friends, is where the magic happens. Join me and my guests for stories that will inspire you to dial up your curiosity, fine-tune your courage and wisdom, and create an empowered relationship with whatever's happening now. When Bernard Moss was 22 years old, he was convicted of attempted murder and spent 28 years in San Quentin prison. 23 years into his sentence, he engaged in a year-long program called GRIP, Guiding Rage into Power which ultimately led to his release from prison and his current career as a facilitator of the GRIP program. In today's interview, Bernard shares a compelling account of his life in the culture of guns and drugs, the continuation of his life of crime while in prison, and the powerful rehabilitation program that transformed his life. Bernard, I'm so glad you agreed to talk with me today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Liz. It's my pleasure. I, I'm so intrigued by your story, and there's several moving parts to it, but you are currently a facilitator of a program called GRIP, which is an acronym for Guiding Rage into Power. And what I've learned about GRIP so far is that it's been developed over 25 years of direct work with thousands of incarcerated people, mostly people with violent offenses, and also working with their victims and survivors. And it started at San Quentin Prison and has since grown to include four additional prisons. Is that correct? Yes. Well, now we're at six prisons and we're we're just starting a, a new pilot program called A Breath of Freedom. It, it's it's not grip, but it's a it's a four month pilot introduction program uh, due to COVID. So since we're not able to go into the institutions right now, we want to give people an opportunity to understand and learn what grip is all about and give them an introduction to the program. So we're doing a pilot for four months and they just get a, a brief taste of what the program is all about. And just the the take start them on the journey to see if they're interested and then once we open back up and start going back inside the prisons they'll be uh invited to to join us and participate in uh, one of our tribes and the participants who go through this program are they're going on an in-depth journey to to be able to understand and transform their violent behavior and and you guys say in your literature to replace it with an attitude of mindfulness and emotional intelligence. That's, that's the gist of what the grip program is about. Is that right? Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. So, so basically what it is, Liz, we, uh, we run a 52 week program and it's a comprehensive offender accountability program where 
our only requirement is that you come in, you have a, at least one year left on your sentence and that you are accountable. You come in and it's hard for some in the beginning, but the willingness to be accountable. You come in and just say, yeah, I I did commit my crime. And as long as you're open to being accountable, we can work with you and we can take you through the process. And uh, a lot of people come in with the thought of wanting to be a better person and we can't make anyone a better person but we tell them that we can help them become their true authentic self so that's what griff is all about mm -hmm. going back to being your true authentic self and I, i'm curious about you're saying the requirement is a willingness to to admit your crime so is it common that people are saying that they're innocent? Well, you have some who are who are innocent and you have some who say they're innocent. So I think uh, accountability and being responsible for your past is a big part of our program. So to be a part of this, you you have to have that willingness to be responsible and accountable for your past actions. So and and it, it's yeah. tough for some. Some come in and with the mindset and of I haven't done anything. And we do have people who who say they're innocent and we will work with someone who says I did not commit the crime that I'm in prison for. So we said, well, have you ever committed a crime in your life? And if they say, yeah, OK, well, let's work with that crime because we're not going to force someone mm -hmm. to say I committed the crime that I'm convicted of. So if you have committed a crime in the past, if you've ever committed a violent act against a person or in the past or uh, if you've done anything violent in your past, let's work with that. And that, that's where we start. Yeah. yeah. And and how I imagine in in people at that juncture where they're 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 stepping up to potentially take full responsibility and accountability. There's probably shame that they need to navigate. Yes. Is that, does that show up a lot in your program? Yes. Shame is very, very big in our program and we deal with shame and it's a deterrent for a lot of people. But what we try to do is teach people that they're not their crime. So um, a big, part of our curriculum it, with dealing with shame is teaching people that uh, you lost yourself for a moment and you're not your crime. So, and when I say that you're not your crime, I, and I'll use myself as an example, I committed the act of attempted murder. So I'm not a murderer. I committed the act of attempted murder. Okay, if I live with the stigma of telling myself that I'm a murderer every day, I'm just beating myself up with that. But if I tell myself I committed an act and I did this act, I can start working with myself from that point, right? And I can start working on forgiving myself for what I did and and being accountable for the act that I committed, right? But if if I just beat myself up every day and tell myself I am, this is who I am, 
then this is who I'm going to be for the rest of my life. So I know who I am. I, I'm, I'm a son. I'm a father. I'm a grandfather. I'm not a murderer. Right. So mm-hmm. we try to get them away from the shame of being the act that they committed and going back to being a father, a son, a brother, uh, 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 someone that people love, you know, because we've all we all have family. And the, the root and the essence of grip is going back to being part of your family, being part of a community and being loved. So once you go back to being loved and caring for, you can care about yourself and love yourself. So that's what we're about. Mm. Now I'm just I'm wondering about in the environment of prison. Is there mm-hmm. is there much of a sense of fellowship and love in prison, like outside of the grip program? If, if people are not in right. that program and they're simply in prison, is there a sense of love and connection in prison? Uh, yeah, because we're all we have. You're all you got when you're in there, right? So let's let's uh, look at prison and I and I can talk about California prisons because that's the only place I've ever served time is in prison in the state of California here in the United States. So we we have prisons in levels. So you start level four and you drop down to level three to level one and your more violent prisons are level four. And as you drop levels, the violence drops. Right. And the interactions between races, uh, you start to mingle more with people of different races and you get more support from each other as you go down in levels because you're able to talk to people and mix and mingle and, and, and work together. So, yeah, you get support, you get love, you get a lot of friends. I've made a lot of good friends. Once I dropped levels and went down, a lot of my friends that I talk to daily are not just black guys that I I was in prison with. They're black, they're white, they're Hispanic, they're Asian. And they're all we're all men who all had a lot in common once we went through this program and we understood that our background and our upbringing were similar and we have a lot in common. So. We were able to bond over that and and go through the the program and really see that we are more alike than we are different. Yeah. Yeah. So you were incarcerated for 28 years. Yes, ma'am. So my story is um, in 1988, I went to the home of a friend who was selling drugs for me at the time. And I came to collect a drug debt and things went sideways. Uh, the, the money he owed me wasn't there. And I felt and, and, I, and I always bring it back to me because nothing he did that day was his fault. Nothing that happened that day was his fault. It was all on me. Um, I felt disrespected. I felt slighted. And the only way I knew how to uh, communicate back then was through violence. So being I felt disrespected and that he owed me money, I acted out and I shot him five times. And thankfully, 
he survived and he didn't die. But I was sentenced to seven years to life in prison. And I served 28 years of seven years to life. And I was released in 2016. So I've been out of prison since 2016 and out here in the community working. But uh, yeah, it was it was horrible with the crime that I committed. And uh, and a lot of victims of crime. It, and it's no fault of theirs. It, it's the person behind that gun or behind that knife who is dealing with things that they don't know how to process in their life. And the thing, the only thing they know how to do is act out. And that's what I knew how to do back then. I knew how to act out. I didn't know how to communicate. I didn't know how to talk. I didn't know how to process my emotions and all the things that I was going through in my life. So what I would do is misdirect it and take it out on other people. And, and he just happened to be the person that was there that day that I took it out on. Sadly. And how old were you? I was 22 years old at the time. And had you, had you, was this the first time you had shot another human being? No, it was not. I was a drug dealer. I had been uh, carrying a gun since I was about 16 years old. Um, I had shot numerous people. Uh, it was just my way of living at that time. I, and we talk about belief systems. Uh, our belief system are very big in, in the grip. What we believe is right. And I believe that that was what I was supposed to do. You know, when you sell drugs, when you mm-hmm. carry guns, and when people disrespect you, you shoot them. And that was my belief system back then. So uh, anybody that got in my way, anybody who disrespected me, anybody I felt like violated me, this was my answer. This is how I communicated through the gun, through through violence. So that that was my way of handling things. And nobody you shot died. No, uh, nobody outside died. Thankful, thankful, or no one I, I I knew of died. I can put it that way, because yeah. I've been I've been in a lot of heated situations when I was younger. Yeah. I imagine you've also been shot at. Yes, I've been shot at many, many times. I've never been shot. I've just been shot at. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I'm just feeling into the the culture that you were a part of then. And what it must have been like to, like everyone had guns and everybody's response to feeling disrespected or, or, you know, the, the landscape of that was to shoot at each other. Right. And that's what you had. You had hundreds of young men carrying guns who believed like this is what we're supposed to do. The societal rules didn't matter to us. We live by our own rules and our own guidelines. So it's like you can shoot somebody today and no one expected anyone to go to court and testify. Because we didn't live by society's rules. We live by our own rules and what we call, quote unquote, the game, the drug game. You're right. So our rules pertain to us and society's rules pertain to society and law abiding citizens. And we weren't a part of that. 
so what what was different in this experience then? Because you had shot at other people before, but in this right. instance, you wound up going to prison. So yes. what was different this time? Um, well, he testified. He decided that uh, he was going to do the right thing. And I'm glad he did. He, he decided that he would testify, that he would make a police report. He would tell them who shot him. And it was unjustified, and he should have. And I was arrested shortly afterwards. Um, the same day that I shot him, I was uh, taken into custody. And I, I had to face uh, justice. And I was sentenced to seven years to life. And and what was it like that day when you got arrested? Uh, basically, I was in disbelief. I was like, I, I couldn't believe that uh, because I was still under that belief system that we don't tell, we don't talk to the police. And I, I can, you know, if I go back into my negative thoughts and my negative mind frame, you know, I can think of all the negative thoughts I had about my victim and the things that I called him, you know, because it's like, really, you really called the police. You said something to the police and I can remember. I, and it's my, my story is when I shot him, I, he, he, I knew he wasn't going to die. I carried him to his bed and gave him a telephone and told him to call 911 to get an ambulance. And I had told him if he had a problem with me, when he got out the hospital, he could come see me about the problem. And I never expected the call to 911 or to the police. Right. But, uh, it, it, it I was in shock that I actually got picked up by law enforcement. So I still had the gun in my possession. It's like, I can't deny anything I did, but I still did. I still denied it, even though I was caught red-handed. And did you deny it? I, I denied it all the way to the jury trial. I went all the way to jury trial, 12 in the box. Like, I still, well, like, you're not going to come to trial. We don't go to trial. We don't, we don't testify. We, this is something we don't do. So yeah, I took it all the way 12 in the box to jury trial and I lost. I I'm just imagining how incredibly disorienting that must have been because you think that you're living in this world and then somebody changes the rules and you get catapulted out of that world into an entirely different world. This world of, we are all in agreement here that this is how we behave together. Right. And now I'm in a world that does not agree with that behavior and I'm going to be held right. accountable. Like right. the denial was, like I just, I, I can just imagine how disorienting that must have been. Yeah. Yes, it's very disorienting, and yeah, and and you try to you try to rectify, you try to justify it, and you can't. It's, there's no justification for what I did, and even even with the justice system offering me uh, plea bargains, I was offered a deal of twelve years. They said, "Well, listen, we don't need you to go to trial. We'll give you twelve years. You can be out of prison in six years." And start to, I couldn't accept that because I, I couldn't accept the fact that I live this lifestyle where we don't testify. 
So it's like, I'm not taking your 12 years. You're going to take me to trial and I'm going to get found not guilty because we don't testify. And this sat yeah. in the back of my mind all the way until I got to the reception center at San Quentin where I was uh, sentenced and ready to start my to life in prison and about to start my sentence. So, yeah. So, so how does the offer of 12 years, which would probably amount to six years, and you say, no, I'm not doing that, and it goes to trial and you get convicted, now it's 28 years. How is that? Well, 28 years comes because when you get to prison with a life sentence, you come to the point where I, well, I came to the thoughts of I'm never going home again. So when I feel like I'm yeah. never going home again, it's break every rule possible in prison. Uh, be as violent oh. as possible <laughs> in prison. Right. I was uh, eligible. I was uh, eligible for parole after tw after uh, 12 years because I had I had seven years to life plus five years. So I had to do a five year sentence. Then my seven years to life started. So after 12 years, I was eligible to go in front of the board of prison hearings to be found suitable for parole. But I was always in trouble. I was always uh, being disciplined for breaking the rules in prison. And they just extended my time. So I was extended all the way out 28 more, you know, until I was. And what what was motivating that the constant breaking of the rules? Uh, what motivated was acceptance. The behavior is to be accepted by your peers, to be uh, part of the clique, the, the crew, to be, you know, one of the fellas, to, to, you know. So you have a lot of guys in prison who this is home now. So in order to be to feel like you're accepted and to be part a part of what's going on inside the walls of prison, you break the rules. You go to the hole. You get locked up inside of lockup. You know, so I'm I'm in prison inside of prison a lot of the time. I'm going to the hole and isolation, and you know that becomes my life. And what's the hole? Um, well, the hole is um, so if you get into a fight, or if you if you're in a riot or a fight, uh, they lock you. In isolation, you're taken away from the uh, general population where everyone is and you're, you're stuck in a cell alone by yourself, away from everyone where you're fed in your cell. You get a yard for an hour uh, a day for maybe two to three days a week. Um, you shower two to three times a week. And for the rest of that time, however time you're sentenced to the hole, you're in that cell. And th that's your program. Your, your privileges are revoked to uh, uh, your canteen, maybe $50 a month canteen. And this is how you live until your isolation time is up. Mm. And then you go back out to the general population. But you're also assessed extra time. So every time you go to add SEG, you're assessed more time in prison, whether it be 90 days or whether it be six months extra time. Yeah. Wow. So you're, it's like a double punishment. Right. You, you go into isolation and you get an extended right. incarceration. Yeah. And some people even go back to court and, and take on more years. Right.
And what's the longest time you spent in in isolation? Uh, nine months. And that was nine for, uh, months. Tra- yes, for trafficking narcotics. In prison. Yes, in prison. Okay. Well, I mean, I, I, I'm getting like there's just a whole massive culture there that we could go into, and I, I, I I'm right. so curious, but we won't because I want to come back to grip. But, but I am, I do want to finish up asking you a little bit more about this. So nine months of basically no human contact. Yes. Is that? Yes, that's that's it. What was that like? It affects different people different ways. Some people they yearn for that that human contact and and they need they need it and they they go crazy. I've seen it happen. And some people are able to just uh sit there and wait it out until your time is up and you can just go back and continue. And I was able to to sit it out and wait and when they told me my time was up, I was able to just go back and continue doing what I normally do. But yeah, it's 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 different for different people. Yeah. And okay, so it sounds like I'm getting the arc of your story because you had a a, a world that you lived in that had played by a certain set of rules. Then mm-hmm. somebody didn't stopped obeying those rules, and that put you into another world with completely different set of rules, which caused you to go to prison. And then in prison, there's the recreation of the old world, the old culture yes. that you came from Yes, there. also exists in prison. Yes. Okay. So, cause now, yes, <laughs> because now we're going to arc into an entirely different world altogether, which is grip. Yeah. Right. And then, and once I started grip, then I'm able to challenge that belief system to where all of that was right. And, and see, and that's that's where the challenges come in. When do you, in your life, do you challenge your belief system? Because for so long, we've always believed that a certain way of life is the only way of life. And a certain way of life is the right way of life. So our strength comes from being able to challenge that belief and look at life in a different way. And to do things differently, and that's what I was able to do throughout through grip to challenge that old belief system. Yeah, and so, so you're 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 in the recreated original adolescent culture. You're now in that culture in prison. The more mm-hmm. aggressive I am, the more um, badass I am, the more I belong. And we have our own rules here. Don't care about the prison guards and all of that as much as we can we have our own rules okay right and so but what's happening is you're getting you're getting you're getting double punished for that so i'm mm-hmm. already punished by being in prison now i'm going to get punished by isolation then i'm going to get punished by extension of my incarceration time so this is right. not actually working very well right <laughs> and so now grip arrives so take take right. us on that journey Okay, so the last time I went to ADSEG was 2009. And when you say ADSEG, can you just... Yeah, that's the whole. That's a, it's called, it's a short for administrative segregation. So it's when the administration takes you off the general population and puts you in the hole. They call it segregation. So my brother and I both had went together. And 
he ended up with a, a what they call an indeterminate shoe term. And uh, security, shoe stands for security housing unit. And he was sent to Pelican Bay State Prison to the uh, shoe. And I was found not guilty. Um, and I kept telling myself the whole time I was sitting there, if I get out of this one, I'm done. I'm going to change my life. And it, it, it was like, yeah, okay. I, I'm even telling myself, yeah, right. But I did. I, when I got back out to the main line, I just started to change slowly, but it, and it was a slow process. And that was 2009. In 2011, I was part of a, a, um, a group called Catargio, which was ran by Jock, who was the founder of GRIP. And he started to introduce uh, the curriculum to GRIP to us. And it was brought in by two facilitators by the name of Robin Guillen and Richard Poma. And they started facilitating grip to our class. And it, it was just, it was so interesting to me, right? And coming from two men who I already respected uh, as convicts, and I knew their journey, and, and, and I just listened to them. And they really believed in what they were telling us, right? And and I, and I bought into it, and it, and the way it was done, it, it was like it, it's magical because it's there's a buy-in. It's just not not like they just throw curriculum at you, and you just listen to it and start working. There's a buy-in. There's everyone in the room finds out what they have in common in grip, right? Everybody in the room invites their family to join us on this journey. So there, there's, it's like, it's sacred. It's you sit in this room with 25 to 30 other people and there's a sacred space and there's this safe space and we share our stories and we cry together and we laugh together. And it was just magical. Right. And, and so I, from 2011 to 2012, I went through this grip program and it, it was like, Okay, I like this. So and yeah, it, it, it just it was powerful and it, it was transforming to me. It transformed my life. So yeah. So I graduated in 2012. Yeah, and then and, and, and I've just been a part of it ever since. Since 2012, I've been I've been gripping, I've been doing the grip program and guiding my rage into power. And so you facilitate now, yes. you currently are a facilitator of this work. And so you know it, it, not only through your own experience of going through it, but like anything, I find if I teach something I've learned, right. I learn it even, even more deeply. Right. Has that been your yes, experience? Yes, it is. And, and that's one of the, yeah. the big things about this program, because one of the things about learning it, so we, we have... Um, three principles to this program, right? And they're, they're instruction, process, and practice. So we give you the instructions on everything. And then there's a process where we do different, different exercises. And then we tell you to start practicing these tools in your life. And pretty soon, they, these tools become a normal, everyday part of your life. And these practices become uh, just a normal, everyday part of life. And before you know it, you're using these grip tools and these grip phrases. And you're like, 
hey, this is really becoming a, a part of my everyday life. <laughs> Before you even re- realize it and recognize it, you're becoming a peacemaker. And, and it's, it's just magical. Yeah. 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 I noticed in your bio, the name peacemaker. And um, I'm so curious about that title. Right. Can you tell me about what that means for you to yeah. be called peacemaker? Yeah. So I, the term peacemaker in grip. So I always think before I speak, before I, I get involved in any situation, when I see something going on, before I intervene, I have to think to myself, right? Before I speak, before I act, is is what I say, first of all, true? Anything I have to say, it needs to be true, right? Secondly, is it going to be helpful? If anything in this situation I have to say, is it going to be helpful? Number three, is it going to be inspiring? Okay, because if if it's not going Mm. to be helpful or inspiring, why am I going to even intervene or say anything? Number four, <laughs> is it necessary? Is if, is what I have to say necessary in this situation? And, and number five, and, and most importantly, is what I have to say kind? Do I have kind words to say in this situation? And if so, then there's a possibility that I can diffuse a situation that I can make peace in a situation. And I'm always looking to do that. Even in prison, once I went through the GRIP program, if I can find a way to diffuse a situation, to make peace, to find two people who are in conflict, and I can bring two people in conflict together. And and just even if they're not, if I don't make them friends, just just to stop the the violence and and the you know, this just raising voices and the, the just that negative energy. If we can diffuse that, hey, I've done my job. Yeah. So in all situations, that's what I'm looking to do in my life moving forward. So I, I call myself a peacemaker because that's what I'm always looking to do in every and all situations in my life moving forward. So. I, I I don't like violence. I don't like to see people getting into violent, uh, committing violent acts. So my job in life is to make peace. And that's what I do. And, and what are the challenges of that? Well, one of the biggest challenges is not everyone has taken grip. <laughs> so a lot of times when people, uh, <laughs> a lot of people think I'm crazy when I, when I approach them with my positive attitude and, and I just try to diffuse situations. A lot of people are like, man, you in my business, bro. Oh, you, you know, and I, and I apologize for being in their business, you know, because, uh, but I also, explain to them that I don't want to see them get in trouble or I don't want to see anything bad happen to them. And that's why I'm in their business. or that's why I'm speaking up or that's why I'm saying something. I don't want to see anyone get hurt today. And it gives somebody some, something to think about. I don't want to see anybody go to jail today. And it's just caring. I'm showing them that I care. And sometimes that diffuses a, a situation right there on the spot. Like, okay, I don't know this guy. But he don't want to see me go to jail. So, hey, okay, let me listen to him for a second. 
So, yeah, I mean, it, it works out, it, 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 yeah. you know, in some of the strangest situations, you'd be surprised. You know, I could be at a uh, just pulling up to a liquor store to go in and buy a bag of chips or something and two guys out front arguing. And I might just uh, walk up. And, hey, how y'all do? Excuse me. And then just start a conversation and it, just interrupt. And they're like, who the hell is this dummy? <laughs> you know, and, and I'll just start talking and, and say something. <laughs> But it diffuses what was going on with the two of them, you know? So, yeah. So, yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow. It's it's amazing because I can feel your commitment and your conviction to move through the world almost with your radar on for potential escalation or right. conflict. And you're like, it's almost like you're seeking those things so that you can come in and bring something to that situation that will create a better situation. Right. Well, yeah. I, I, yeah. And yeah, I think that's so important in the world is especially with what's going on in this world and all the violence that's going on out here. You know, We do, we need people to just, you know, step in and, and speak yeah. up, you know? Yeah. I always hear the phrase silence is violence. So I'm not going to be silent. I'm going to always speak up. Yeah. Okay. So, um, being that you are a facilitator of the grip program and know it intimately, I'd love to, I'd love to hear more about the actual, how the program works. And there's four key elements. Is that yes. right? Yes, there are four key elements. So, so yeah. number one is stopping our violence and doing no harm. Okay. Uh, number two is developing emotional intelligence. Uh, number three is cultivating mindfulness. And and uh, the number four, which is very important, is understanding victim impact. And why that is so important is because when we're out committing crimes, a lot of us don't think about the impact the crimes we commit have on our victims and their families and the community. And when we really get get in these circles and we sit down and we start talking about the impact that we had on community, it's very, very impactful on the people who committed these acts. And when we really get to look back and see what we did and how many people we've hurt and we've impacted, it's hurtful. We we didn't mean to hurt, you know, we didn't want to hurt people like that. And a lot of us were caught up in addiction. Uh, we were just caught up in not understanding ourselves emotionally and how to process things that were going on in our life. And, and sometimes it's just so simple. It's something as simple as knowing how to talk to somebody, knowing how to ask for help, you know, just, just saying, I need to talk to somebody today. I need to just get it off my chest. And sometimes that's all we need. And, you know, so. Yeah, and, and, and violence in grip, it, our definition of violence is an expression of an unmet need. That's exactly what violence is. So mm. if I can express what my need wow. is, maybe I don't have to be violent. If I can, if my need can be met, I don't have to be violent. Right. So, yeah. Well, and, you know, that sounds good on paper, but that, I imagine, is an incredibly difficult process to get in touch right. with your need. Right. Well, and and that's why we 
this program is 52 weeks. So let's go back. We do what we call building a safe container, right? So, and and, and let's imagine bringing, thir- let's just say we bring 35 men together on a prison yard, right? None of these men, the majority of them don't know each other, have never had an intimate conversation with one another. You know, they might see each other on the prison yard and say, hi, how you doing, passing, coming and going. And some know each other intimately, but the majority don't. So how do you get 35 people in a room to trust one another with your, with your deepest, darkest secrets? You know, maybe if, and I'll just use this as an example, maybe I was molested as a child, right? And how do I say this in front of 34 other men in prison? Well, I need to build a safe container for a person to know that it's okay to say this in front of 34 other people and they're not going to take this out to the yard and spread it on a prison yard. So what we do is we run our participants through a series of questions and we do a what we call a, a tribal inventory. And we talk about who was on uh under the influence of drugs during the time they committed their crimes, who grew up without a positive male role influence growing up, who had a male, a positive male role influence. Uh, we talked about how many years we served. And that's one of the most important things, uh, naming our tribe. So our, each tribe is named by the number of years that each participant has ever served. So for me, 28 years. So every tribe that I'm a part of, my number is 28. So it's added to the tribe. And after every participant gives the number of years they've served, it's added up. And your tribe number is uh, tabulated. And that's your tribe from that day on. So you may be tribe 582. You might be tribe 1065. And we've had tribes over 1000. So that's a bond right there because it's everybody's total amount of time combined. And that helps bond people. Uh, we talk about how many people have are in for murder, have taken a life, all to all these things. And people just find out what we all have in common. We talk about our struggles and we do it blindly. We talk about blind struggle where we'll write down our struggles and Somebody else will read a struggle and you'll talk about, you know, what that struggle is. And no, it doesn't have a name on it, but it's read out loud. And when you hear it, you'd be like, did I write that? Because that sounds like something I've been through. But it, it but once it's all done and we take we take 12 weeks uh, in the 52 week classes building this safe container before we even start doing the work. So 12 weeks of this curriculum is getting to bond with one another. And, and just trust in one another. So once that's established, then we start doing the work. But even before that, we, we come together and we, we don't have any rules in the grip. So how do you run a group with no rules? We have agreements. These are our agreements. We have confidentiality, respect and integrity. And everyone in the room has to agree to this before we start. 
So we tell them the prison, there's rules in prison all day and the prison we're governed by rules in prison. So we don't want to group with rules. But if we can all come together and agree to certain things, then we can function through our agreements and and govern our own selves through our agreements. And that's how we do. So I, I'm curious about the governance of agreement. So h- how how do you guys handle it if someone breaks an agreement? So if an agreement is broken, we all come together as a community and we come in a circle and we, we talk about it. And, and then a decision is made. So the facilitators are the governing body and we all, that's one of the agreements that they, they agreed to let the, the facilitators make their final agreement on what's done. We don't, we don't believe in kicking people out of the group. We, we just don't believe in that. But we figure out ways of, of rectifying the situation. And we've never had a real problem with someone not following the agreements. Everyone uh, uh, lives up to their word. We say we're going to follow these agreements. And most of the time when we have a situation where they feel like someone has broken an agreement, once everything comes to light, we figure out it hasn't been violated and we're able to continue. Mm. But if you think it has been, then let's bring it to the table. Let's talk about it. Let's put it all out there. And and that's what the community is about. We bring everybody together and we talk about it as a community. It's no talking behind the person's back and while they're not in the room. And no, it's all done right there as a community. Yeah. Well, I'm also really feeling like the difference between this and, for example, the um the justice system or the penal system, right? right? Where it's not like the, here's the whole panel that looks at you who broke the agreement and right. we're going to decide something. Right. It's like we're in circle right. together here, including the person who broke the agreement right. to have his voice about right. what happened for him, what was going on for him when he broke that agreement. Right. Yeah. If they broke the agreement, right. And, and the people who are listening are seeking to understand this human. Right. That's right. And people are also able to express how they feel if they if that agreement was broken and they tell them if you did do it, you know, I always look at you like family and I love you and I care about you. And if you did this, then this is how I feel. And and it's just magical. And and you start getting, you know, people who are uh, sentenced to life in prison. And this is the conversation that they're having in the room about how I feel. If you violated agreement that we had to do this work together. And I I feel like if you did this, then it hurts me. And we're able to have this conversation. Not I'm going to catch you on the yard and I'm going to beat you up because you violated this agreement. It doesn't even that never even comes up. Yeah. Yeah. And and you said you rarely see anybody breaking the agreement. And I really feel how that 12 weeks of creating the bonding and the community, everybody's invested in this community that they belong to and belong in. And when they agree, like when do the agreements come in after the 12 weeks, before the 12 weeks, during it? Uh, The agreements come in during the 12 week process. So we basically 
the first four weeks, we're doing the uh, tribal membership, what we call a tribal membership. So I told you about we bring our families along with us, right? So what we do is we fill out membership forms. And what we do every week, we put out a tribal book. And in the tribal book, we have our ancestors, our, our immediate family, anybody in your family that you could think of would it be a great grandparent, a great, great grandparent, great aunts, cousins, friends that you your friends that you used to hang out with on the streets that that still you're still in contact with or that you love that you think about. You know, everybody that you want to bring along on this positive journey with you, you fill out this sheet, your children, your grandchildren, your nieces, your nephews, you fill out this sheet and you put out, you put their names in it. You know, your, your immediate ancestors, your, everybody, whoever you could think of, and they go inside a tribal book. And this tribal book is placed in the center of the circle every week. So every week we come to circle, you can go pick up the tribal book and you can look at it and you can read it and you can look at your other tribe members, family members and who they're bringing along on the journey. And it just gives so much meaning to this process. So to this journey, you're bringing all of these people with you. It's it's deep. And yeah, I, I love it. So, yeah, we, we do that during the first four weeks. The agreements are done right around, I say about the 10th week or so, we start the agreements and we start placing, getting them placed in. And once that 12 weeks is up, we, we start to work. So when you start the work, what does that mean? What does that look like? So one of the, one of the first things we do is we, we start getting pay people to look at who they truly are. So when I say who we truly are, I don't know if you've ever heard the term of walking around with a mask on or, or with shades on. To survive in prison uh, for a lot of years, I walked around prison with a mask on. So I always had a scowl on my face or I really wasn't. And, and if you look at me today, I smile a lot. Uh, you know, and that's just who I am. I wake up and I smile. Um, I didn't smile a lot in prison. I always had a scowl on my face. I wanted to intimidate the person across the aisle from me or across, you know, that's walking up to me. I, I, I needed to take that mask off. So we do somewhat of an unmasking and we do an exercise called the shades exercise. And we talk about all the different shades that we've worn in our lifetime. And and a lot of times we wear shades to survive. So it's and and it could be the I don't matter shades and and it, you know it's I don't want people to look at me. So this is why I carry myself this way. I don't I don't care, and this is why I carry myself this way. So I want people, and we want people to be who they truly are. So we want you to strip all of that away. But in order to strip it all away, you have to first recognize it. And a lot of times people don't even recognize that they've been doing this all of their life. So we start we get people to start recognizing that they've been wearing these masks or these shades all of their life. And once people are starting to realize that, 
then they can start slowly stripping that away and they can start becoming their true self. You know, that's the beginning, the essence of that. So what's an example of, of a way that, like, let's say you have someone who's a participant in the yes. program and, and they don't think that they're wearing shades. They think this is me. This right. is who I am. When I go around scowling at people in the prison yard, that's who I am. Right. So they don't see it as shades. How do you help them see it? Well, we, we, we have exercises and we have readings and stories that we take them through and, and they start to understand. It's, it's a process, but you have aha moments throughout this curriculum. You know, when you go through it, there's certain aha, like, damn, that is me. That's me. I've done that. Okay, this is me. No, that's me. And and for myself, for a lot of time, I, I didn't know. But once I started reading, and I was like, well, damn, yeah, I have done that. And that's part of the uh, the emotional intelligence piece. You know, you start realizing, like, yeah, I have been doing that. And I do do that. And I do, I do care, but I don't want people to know I care. And why don't I want people to know I care? So it, it makes you start taking that deeper look inside and looking at yourself. And, you know, you realize, okay, yeah, maybe there is some changes that need to be made here. So, yeah. Right. So you're, the, the participants are given through stories, right. through stories, they're given examples of what it might look like for someone to be wearing shades. Right. And, and then I imagine like in the group of 32 people, some people might get it a little sooner. And as they start to admit, oh, I see this is shades that I have on, that also is instructional for the other people in the circle. Right. It's like you guys are teaching each other as you go. Is that right? Right. And, and see, yeah. And and all the shades aren't just negative uh, to say, you know, it's like, you might wear what you call shot caller shades, right? Where I always have to be in control. I'm the person that's in control and I, I'm i the person who makes sure this is goes the way it's supposed to go. And I, I'm running things and this is how I've been my whole life. I, I've always had to run things and I've had, and you start seeing that about yourself and maybe it's time to take a step back, right? And, but maybe it's time to take those shades off. And and that one, the need for control, why do you call that one shot color shades? Well, in prison, you have what we call shot callers, and those are the guys who run the yard. But you also have people who have to run people's lives and not only run your own life, but you have to run everybody else's life and, and run everything around you. So maybe I'm that person. And Maybe those are the shades that I've been wearing all my life. I have to be in control of everything. So let me take those shades off and let me not have to be in control of everything all the time. Maybe I let other people control stuff and, and, and let me just kick back and let my heart and my mind be at ease for a little while and see how that feels. You know, because we, we all we're talking about belief systems here. But I've always believed that I have to be in charge. I have to be the one dictating everything. Is that true? Is it so? Let's see how it feels when I don't do that. 
Okay, so when you're in that place um, where I have to be in control, and control includes shooting people who piss me off right. or disrespect me. Um, so when you're now being invited to look at what is the unmet need mm -hmm. under that, what did you discover for yourself? Um, I think my unmet need was to be loved. I, I needed to love myself, though. And that's what I didn't do. I didn't love myself. And I didn't I didn't feel I didn't feel wanted. I didn't feel like a sense of belonging in my family. And it was it was nothing that anyone in my family did. It was my own thinking. And I let my thinking drive me to the point of not feeling wanted. Uh, so I can take you back to I didn't find out who my biological father was until I was 16 years old. And when I found out uh, that I had a different biological father than my brothers, it took me on a psychologically, it took me on a trip to a feeling of not being wanted or not being, I, I, I felt different. And I didn't know how to explain that I felt different. I didn't know how to explain that I didn't feel part, like a part of my family. And then I met a different, you know, I went to another state and met my biological father and his family. And I just didn't feel like they didn't accept me and I wasn't a part of them. And so now I feel like I'm in the world and I don't belong anywhere. So how do I find where I belong in this world at 16 years old? So I want to be included. I want to feel accepted so I can go to the streets and be accepted. If I go out to the streets with the drug dealers and the thugs, they'll accept me. All I have to do is carry a gun, sell drugs, be violent. And the more violent I am, the more respected I am, the more accepted I am. And that worked. And that's all I had to do. If I continued this behavior, the, the acceptance was there. The love was there. People loved who I was, you know, so. I just continued that behavior until I couldn't continue it anymore. But until something outside of you said, you're done because right. now you're going to, you're going to prison and yeah. now you're going to prison. And, and so you said, I denied it. I denied it all the way through, including I denied it in my jury trial. And then, but I was convicted and I was sentenced and I went to prison. At what point did you, like how much longer did you continue to deny that you should, um, no, that's the wrong question. Mm -hmm. I am curious about just when did denial shift for you? Uh, I think in 2009 when I, when I finally decided that I was done with illegal activities, 2009, I said, I'm just done committing crime. I'm, I'm through selling drugs. I'm through breaking the law. And I just started committing to to positive things, to positive, uh, you know, groups and doing what I, what I felt I should be doing. And when grip came along in 2011, it just helped me really go back to being my true authentic self. And, and that, that was the ticket that that's what I needed. And it came at a time when I really needed it. So how, how long had you been in prison at 2009? From in 2009, I had been incarcerated. Let's see. 21 years, I think. Yeah, 21 years. 
Okay. So <laughs> I'm already just seeing like what's so broken about the system right. because you're you're incarcerated because you've created crime and then you spend 20 years in prison creating crime. It doesn't it doesn't stop you from creating crime. No. In prison you can do what you want to do. There's, you just do it in Right. You you have a choice. You can you can rehabilitate yourself or you can go to prison and and just continue doing what you were doing on the streets. It's your choice. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so what happened? Like you said a little bit about it earlier, but like what happened for you in 2009 that you said cuz it was your whole life up to 22 and then 20 years in prison. Right. So f- so up till 42 years old and then you said I'm done. Right. Why? Uh because I started to really think that I'm not doing anything to help anybody doing what I'm doing. My life was just so negative. I had a daughter who was in trouble. She was, she had been kidnapped. She had been, uh, she had been kidnapped by a pimp when she was uh, a teenager. She had got caught up in the lifestyle of, uh, in the porn industry. She, she was reaching out to me for help and I couldn't help her. And it's like, I need to get out of prison. I have been incarcerated since she was four months old and she needed help. And I knew my other children needed help. And I really was in a situation where I couldn't help anybody. I was basically selfish. And all I thought about was myself. And it was time to stop thinking about just me. Uh, My mother was getting older and she was getting up in age. And I figured... I needed to get out of prison uh, to help my family and to help the people that I love. And I couldn't do it, continuing to do the things that I was doing in prison. And and I just kept telling myself, if I get out of this situation, I'm going to turn my life around. And one of the things I tell my mother all the time is I I, I used to tell her, I want to get out of prison to hear you one day say, I'm proud of you. And so that was my goal. So when uh, about two, two or three years ago, I sat at my mother's kitchen table and we were talking and she just looked at me and said, well, I'm really proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> and I just broke down and cried. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was powerful. It was a magic moment for me. Yeah. It, wow. It's, it's just, you're speaking so much to the power of intention. Yeah. Like what I hear you saying shifted for you was you went from kind of just moving through the world the way I know how to move through the world to I'm going to be, I have something that matters that I am going to be very intentional about here. I'm going to get out of prison. I'm going to take care of my family. I'm going to take care of my mother and I'm going to make my mother proud of me. And then that, it's like that led you. Yes. Yeah. That's my motivation. Yeah. Yeah, And it did lead me to to where I am today. And and today now I get to give back something that was given to me. So the the grip curriculum and and just the way of life was given to me. And I get to give that back to so many people. You know, I get to go back inside all of these different prisons and back to these different prison yards. And and I get to talk to people and share my experience and share that this is really possible and this you can you can do this also if you just commit yourself and, and to 
going back and being who you truly are, your true authentic self. And when I say being our true authentic selves, it's like our parents and our grandparents didn't raise us to be thugs or to to go out and break laws and commit crimes. You know, we we you know, we we were good kids growing up, right? Somewhere down the line, we took a wrong turn and we didn't get back on the right track. So this is our opportunity to get back on that right track and and live our life to the to our fullest potential and do the right thing. So that's what I want to do. I want to live and help others. And is that your like I'm curious what your personal what your personal understanding is of who your authentic self is? Well, to my true authentic self, I am I am a husband, I am a father, I am a son, I am a grandfather, I'm a brother, and, and, and I am a, a member of the community, of the society. I am a peacemaker, and a, that's who I am. That's my true authentic self, and, and that's who I live to be every day. I am a I'm a grip facilitator. I am a positive person and I and I try to be a positive person in all situations and that's just who I am and and I want to continue to be that until I can't anymore until I'm not no longer on this earth. So this is what who, who I am. This is why I feel I was put here and, and I'm going to continue to do that every single day. So every morning I wake up, I wake up to to the grip curriculum and and this is what I do. And when you say I I am a positive person, what does that mean? For for me it's just um shining a positive light on all situations that I can and and if and not injecting any negativity into anything. If I if I have to inject negativity into it, I try not to to be a part of it. If, if, um, all situations can't end up being good, but if I can have the, any power that I can wield into any situation, I want to try to input some good into that situation. So that's what I do. It, it's such a clear distinction. I like, I love what you're saying. It's for you being a positive person is I am very conscious that I am not putting negative energy into the world. Right. That's right. And and what happens when you have an experience where negative energy is arising in you? Like let's say anxiousness or frustration or um anxiety or or rage. Like what what happens for you if those natural human emotions start to right. arise? Um I try to sit them out. And, and, and process them and figure out where they're coming from and why are they coming up and, and what they mean and, and, and just really put put some thought into it. And, and that's the difference now between my reaction and my responses. I used to just react to things. So if something came up, I would react and I would just go off. Today, I can make an informed decision about things and I can stop and I can think and I can process and I can really say, okay, let me think about this and let me, and, and I can, and I can even give you an example of, we had rented a house a couple of years ago before we bought here. And I had a neighbor who loved every morning 
when I opened my garage, he would open his garage and he would just call me the N word every morning. Now, earlier in my in my life, I probably would have went over and probably socked him in the mouth. My wife, my wife got so angry every time he would do it. And I had to finally say, hey, let him enjoy himself. If that makes him feel good <laughs> every day to call me the N-word, then let him feel good about himself. It doesn't bother me so because I know who I am and I know that's not me. So if he needs to call me the N-word every morning when I open my garage to get in my car to make himself feel better about himself, then so be it. And as long as I lived there, every morning when I opened my garage, he would open his garage. He would call me the N-word. I would smile. I would get in my car. I would start it up and I would back out and leave. And I would not match his energy. I would not respond to him. And I was able to continue my day without an incident. And, and my day went fine. But if I would have responded to him, or if I were reacted to what he was saying, then everything would have went bad. And, and I already know it, it just would have elevated and, and, and it, it would have went bad. And I couldn't allow that, you know. So I, I value my freedom. I value being with my family. And so I have a choice. I can make an informed, wise decision. <laughs> <laughs> and respond wisely, or I could make a blind reaction. Yeah. So. yeah. Wow. This is so. There's two things that you're saying. One, do you know who Victor Frankel is? Yeah, I've heard Victor Frankel is. Yeah. Yes. So Victor yes. Frankel wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. He was in a, a Jewish internment camp in the war, right. and he has a saying between stimulus and response, there is a space, a gap. And in that gap is where our freedom and our power lives. And I was going to ask right. you, what does freedom mean for you? And I do want to hear your answer, but I'm already hearing part of it because that willingness to allow that human being to be violent, to be aggressive, to, to be however he's being and say, I'm not going to take that on. I'm not going to take that personally. I can just feel the freedom in that. Right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and and it's just my tools that I've been taught. Right. Yeah. And that's one of our tools. Uh, it's my Q-tip quit taking it personal. And I, I don't take things like that personal. It's, it's, it's him. He has an issue. I don't. So he yeah. has some work to do. He needs to figure out why that he needs to call me that every morning. He needs to figure out what's going on in his life to make him feel this way. I understand me. I understand <laughs> how I feel when he says it. And I know it doesn't bother me and I can move forward. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you said this thing that was just so gorgeous because I know who I am. That, that's why I don't mm -hmm. have to take it personally, because I know who right. I am. So I, I, I feel right. like that's also freedom. Well, okay. So, so, but I do want to just have you in your own words. Like, what does freedom mean for you? Freedom to me means an opportunity to, and how do I want to say this? 
Freedom for me is an opportunity in this world to just to live again, to, to because I, I, I gave up my, my rights and my opportunity to live in this world, to live freely in this world by committing crimes. And today I get to just live freely and do and go where I want to go. And and I get to be a father and I get to be around eight beautiful, amazing grandchildren. And I get to be around six children and my wife and my mother, and my mother-in-law. And I I just get to be around family. Family is so important and uh, uh, amazing co-workers and it's 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 just life. I get to live, and it's beautiful. And I I thought I would never get that opportunity again. At 22 years old, I thought I was going to die in a prison cell, and now I get to I get to do it all over again. So it's like a rebirth for me. At at 50 years old, I was born again, and I get to come back out to society and start over and reestablish myself. And do it the right way this time. And I've learned that I can do all the things that I used to do, selling drugs and living an illegal lifestyle. I can do it legally today. And I can work every day from nine to five and earn an honest living. It's it's wonderful. It's a great feeling. And what was it? Because I remember Emiliano had said to me, and Emiliano is one of your coworkers, and he's he was my first contact with Grip, and I am so grateful to him for introducing me to you so that we could have this conversation. And he said, you know, people are in prison and they work the Grip program, and they 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 get emotional intelligence, and they get self awareness, and they get um, they cultivate mindfulness, and they learn all of these tools, and they're transformed. And they're in the bubble of the tribe of the GRIP program. So I'm curious when you got released, like, first, I'm curious about that day itself, and then kind of the journey um, outside, out of prison now in the real world. What were those like for you? Okay, well, let's break it down into two questions. So first of all, what was it like for you the day you walked out of prison after 28 years? It, it, it was amazing. Uh, my wife was there. She picked me up at the gates of San Quentin. And it was just it, to finally ride in a car without restraints on me, uh, other than a seatbelt, to not be shackled at my feet and my around my waist and wrist. Uh, just was freedom to be able to roll down the window and let the air blow on me, um, to go. Her friend cooked me breakfast that morning. We stopped by one of her friend's house and we had breakfast and just the, the freedom of all of that to finally eat real bacon after 20 some odd years. I hadn't had bacon in 20 years, you know, 28 years. So. <laughs> Real food. It, it, it was just great. Just, uh, just, just amazing. And then just to, to go see my mother and, and hug her outside of a prison visiting room and surprise my children one at a time to, because I didn't let any of my children know I was coming home. So I, oh, I stopped really? at, uh, 
yeah, that I didn't let no one know. My mother was the only one knew that I was my wife and my mother were the only two knew I was coming home. So I got to surprise grandchildren and children and sneak up on them and make videos. And yeah, so it, it was magical. <laughs> it, was, it was wonderful. So I enjoyed it. So how old were your children when you got out? So my two youngest daughters were 28 years old when I came home. And my oldest daughter was 30, 32 years old when I came home. Yeah. And <laughs> how, how did they respond to the surprise? Oh, they, they were elated. They were so happy just to see me home finally. Yeah. So it was great just to spend the time. I, with I mean, I can't even imagine like, well, first, obviously I can't imagine being in prison. Like you're not free to come and go as you please. You're not free to just walk outside when you want to walk outside. So the right. shift must have been so profound to suddenly I yes. can do whatever I want. Whatever I want, whenever I want. Right. And there's still some restrictions on you when you go, cause you're still on parole and you have to report to a parole officer and you have to ask to go over 50 miles outside of your County. And, you know, so there were still some restrictions for uh, three years, but it was okay. I didn't mind. Yeah. How long have you been out now? I've been out, uh, June will be five years and I've been off parole now since 2019. Congratulations. Thank you. Appreciate it. And I, I guess one, just one more question about the coming out because the world must have changed. Uh, like I imagine the world changes in right. prison as well, but, but I assume the world outside changes e even more. Was it, what was that like for you to come back out into a world that is 28 years different. Yeah. Well, yeah. To go inside of a Costco or Sam's club, or, you know, those, those types of stores didn't exist before I went in. So all these big, uh, warehouse superstores, you know, just to walk inside one of those and just see all these big giant items inside of the stores was, was different. Um, self-serve, uh, gas stations. I remember when the, the attendant used to come to your car and pump your gas and, that that isn't uh, available anymore, and you know you have to do everything now with a debit card or, or a credit card, and to pump you get you know all these different changes. So I had to learn every. I was like a new baby. I had to learn everything. I had never been on a computer in my life, so I had to learn how to use a computer and how to log on. Yeah, I had never sent an email in my life, so these were it was all new. It was like learning a second language. So. Yeah, I'm still learning. I'm, uh, I've been out almost five years now, and I'm still learning these different things and you know how to get on, uh, log on to this and to that, and pay bills online and log on to your bank account. You know, so yeah, so it, it's just yeah, it's it's different and it's new and it, it's exciting, but it, it's worth it. It's 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 a journey worth uh, taking. And what? What what do you think? I mean, because grip is a is a powerful way to support incarcerated humans yes. to um, recover to their authentic self and to get the skills of of living in in a self responsible way in the world. And I'm curious about your point of view about incarceration itself. 
how it's done in the U.S. And what do you think about that whole system? Well, yeah, I think that um, the rehabilitation part in the U.S. is uh, somewhat lacking. Uh, and programs like like we're in the midst of trying to replicate our program and get it in as many prisons as possible here in the state of California. And uh, that's one of our goals. We want this program to be available to as many people, men's and women's institutions here around the state of California as possible, and as many states as we can get it into. And if we can get in other countries, we want this program in as many states, countries, institutions as possible, because I feel that emotional intelligence this work is just so, so important. And when we talk about decarceration and just stopping crime, period, and stopping the uh, mass incarceration and locking people up, emotional intelligence is a big piece of that. And it's sad that people have to go to prison to get this. If we can get it to people sooner than later, I mean, it would be so great, you know. So, yeah. Uh, the system is broken. Uh, I will say that, but uh, it's repairable, and I think we can fix it. I think uh, if we all put our heads together and we work together, we we can uh, we can solve this problem. We really can. And what what is in the? Because you're saying we want to get it out as many places as we can. Mm -hmm. So what are the obstacles to that? Um, a lot of it is funding. A lot of it is space. A lot of prisons don't have the space for um, a program like uh, GRIP because you need a room that can hold up to 30 people, uh, 25 to 30 people. And the uh, a lot of prisons are just in the middle of nowhere. So it's uh, getting volunteers that can get out to the prison. Um, uh, for instance, we have Avenal, which is out near uh, Bakersfield area, and it's you know, it's in the middle of nowhere, opposed to San Quentin. San Quentin is right in the Bay Area, and San Quentin has hundreds and hundreds of volunteers going in and out every day. You know, opposed to prisons that are out in the desert or out in the middle of nowhere, where you have very few volunteers going in and out of prison. So, if I drive to a from where I'm located to drive to one of those prisons, it's maybe a four-hour drive, and if I'm holding the class. It's a one hour to two hour class to, and I'm driving four hours there and four hours back. It's hard to find people willing to do that. So location of the institutions is really, really an uh, obstacle also. So, yeah, we have a lot of things that um, that prevent us from being able to replicate in, in all of the institutions, but it's, I mean, it's something we're willing to take on. It's a challenge that we, we're taking on. And if we can, we're going to get this in as many prisons as we can. So yeah, we welcome the challenge. And are you personally doing any, any work in the realm of like, how do we get to these kids before they actually commit a crime that they're going to get incarcerated for? Yeah, well, um, we uh, run a session with uh, one of the juvenile uh, facilities called Camp Sweeney. They're out of Alameda County. So we work with the kids in Camp Sweeney and a lot of their parents have been incarcerated. And so we, we try to reach out to them. And uh, 
I do a lot of individual work with juveniles myself. And so, yeah, we, we mentor and we do as much as we can because we personally do not want to see any young people have to come to prison to get emotional intelligence. We want to get it out there into the world and into young people uh, before they do commit crimes or before they're convicted of a crime and sent off to prison or the juvenile facilities. Yeah. Okay, last question. And this is inspired by one of my favorite Buddhist teachers and authors. Her name is Pema Chodron. And she says, courage is not the absence of fear. It is becoming intimate with fear. Can you talk about a time in your life that you found courage? Yeah, I think um, one of the main times I found courage was when I got out of the hole in uh, 2009 and I decided to just stop being involved with prison politics in, in all in itself, right? A lot of times when you walk away from that lifestyle in prison, you have to go to what they call sensitive needs yards or protective custody. And I just decided that to tell my homeboys that I'm done. I don't care anymore. I don't care about what's going on around the yard, uh, what other people are doing. It's not my business. My business is me and going home to my family. And whoever doesn't like it just doesn't like it. And I appreciate if you don't bring things to me about other people and what's going on with other people. My, my concerns are me. And and when they started telling me about things that were going on with other people and when other people needed to be disciplined about something, I told them, I don't care. And they would look at me and say, huh? And I said, hey, I don't care. I don't want to hear it. That's not my business. And pretty soon they just stopped telling me. And I, I was like, hey, you got, you know, take that away from me. Deal with that on your own. Or I would walk away and I would just go, you know, find a positive. I would get away from the negativity. So any negative energy that I was feeling, I would walk away from it. And, and I was blessed to have the respect from people that I had been dealing with for over 20 some years to where people didn't feel like they needed to do anything to me. They just felt like, OK, let's let Bernard go on about his business and live his life and do what he needs to do to, to get home to his family. And, and I was able to do that. Yeah. And why did that require courage? Uh, because a lot of times the violence is brought to you. A lot of times people want to, uh, they want to hurt you because now you're walking away from them. And it's, it's like, uh, you're walking away from us. You're leaving us, you're abandoning us and we're not going to allow that. So when you abandon us, we're going to hurt you. And you have to confront, you just have to take that on. Yeah, I know that this is a possibility and, I'm just going to take that on. If that's what you decide to do, then, hey, you decide to do that. And did that happen? Did anyone try and no, hurt you? No, they did not. I, 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 like I said, I was blessed that people respected me enough not to. But you didn't know. That's the courage right. part, right? I didn't know, right. You exactly. didn't know that they would just allow you to be your authentic right. self. Let you didn't know that truth. they would. Right, exactly. Yeah. 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 It has been such a pleasure 
to talk with you, Bernard. Thank you so much. Thank you, Liz. I appreciate you so much. This has been a blessing. And, you know, I, I just love getting the word out about GRIP and, and what we have to offer to the world and to the people that are participating. You know, we're in the business of sending home safe people. And, and you know, that's one of the biggest things that we like to get across that uh, people that go through the GRIP program are safe human beings once they come home from prison. We've um, graduated over 300 and some odd lifers and one person has uh, recidivated and came back to prison and that was for a nonviolent offense. So our numbers are good. We, uh, our program is effective and we're doing good things. So, Well, I'm going to post a link um, on the show notes to the, the GRIP site. Is there anywhere else you'd like me to direct our listeners to, to support you? Or is there any fundraising campaigns or any way that they can? Yeah, they can go on our website at uh, griptraininginstitute.org, uh, uh, G-R-I-P slash traininginstitute.org. It's all lowercase letters. And uh, yeah, and just check out our trailer and it has all the information on there. And if they feel like uh, donating, it, uh, we'd be more than happy to accept their donation. And yeah, we, we're just out about doing the work. We appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible. It's incredible work that you're doing and it's, it's happening where it is so essential and so needed. So thank you. Thank you, Liz. Appreciate it. And you guys, it's so worth going over to the GRIP website and watching the six and a half minute trailer on their homepage. It's a small documentary they've made of some of the participants going through the program. It's deeply moving and inspiring and well worth your time. Thanks for joining us today, everyone. If you like the show, I'd so appreciate it if you could rate it, subscribe, and share it with people you think would love it. It's an unpaid labor of love, and your support encourages me to keep it coming. Check out the show notes for links to my coaching website, lizwilson.com, and my coaching blog, trackingyes.com. Talk to you next time, and in the meantime, have a great week, and keep the compass lined up with yes. Yes.